Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. This installment of the East-West Psychology Podcast will conclude our double episode feature on Haridas Chowdhury and the roots of the California Institute of Integral Studies. This episode features a talk by Jim Ryan, who started teaching at CIIS in 1981, becoming core faculty in 1986. He is the former director of the Asian and Comparative Studies program in the Philosophy and Religion Department. Jim takes us on a deep historical and cultural journey, recounting Haridas Chowdhury coming from Calcutta to San Francisco with the dream of cultivating an East-West dialogue and how he established the California Institute of Asian Studies, later becoming the California Institute of Integral Studies. He also speaks of the origins of the East-West Psychology Department in those early days of the institution. I want to go back to um, uh, Haridas Chaudhary uh, in Bengal, uh, as he uh, he was, you know, uh, who was the founder of the Institute of Asian Studies, and then of course the Institute of Integral Studies, um, and he was a um, an orphan, and in fact, I I think I'm correct that um, he was born in what now would be called Bangladesh. Um, uh, he was uh, the the you know it was the eastern part of Bengal. And that got split off in 47. And then, of course, at a certain point along the way, in like 73 or so, um, became a separate state, Bangladesh. But then, um, so he was an orphan, and I don't know his early details. I do know that he was um, at a university in uh, Bengal, and I not sure it was, it probably was Calcutta, but he was essentially on a track in those days, almost no university taught um, Indian philosophy in India. In fact, even now, there's only a select few universities that teach Indian philosophy. Under Modi, there's a drastic change, but 10 years ago, you could hardly find a philosophy department that would teach Indian philosophy. They had the British model completely. But uh, so he was in that model and he decided to do his dissertation on Sri Aurobindo. Um, And they allowed it somehow, uh, the integral philosophy of Sri Aurobindo. I think that's the title of his dissertation, actually. And he had the um, uh, special kind of circumstance where he, Trurabindo corresponded with everybody. And you can see his collected works are just so massive because he wrote letters constantly because he went into seclusion in 1926 and was secluded until 1956. Not completely because mothers met him all the time and his old friends from Bengal used to come and meet him many times, but otherwise he did not appear before the general public except on Darshan days a couple times a year. And so he had a massive correspondence and it seemed like he would answer anybody. Well, essentially he became what you might consider the outside reader for Haridas Chaudhary's dissertation. Uh, Haridas used to send him his drafts of his chapters and Sri Aurobindo made extensive comments on it, on, you know, on his dissertation. So he really had good uh, sourcing. Um, so um, uh, uh, 
so that's uh, uh, Dr. Chaudhry's connection with um, uh, Sri Aurobindo. And uh, uh, he, he got appointed to a university professorship in uh, Calcutta. And I'd have to look, the, I didn't look that one up. But, um, and um, and uh, turned out that he, Bina Chaudhry, I think, was the daughter of the department chair or one of his colleagues at the in his department, uh, and somehow the guy liked Haridas and he introduced Bina to him, um, and that's how they came together. And they used to go down and visit uh, Sri Aurobindo uh, uh, and mother. Uh, in what would that would be in the 40s, I guess, after they were married. So then the story has to uh, 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 switch to um, this uh, extraordinary fellow, Louis Gainsborough. Uh, he was a merchant uh, marine guy. He was a merchant mercantile guy. I always think of the Merchant of Venice, if you've read that book. He used to um, consign uh, cargoes and, uh, you know, send them out to foreign ports and traded, you know, and that's how he got relatively wealthy. And he believed in like 19, late 1940s that if the Americans did not connect with the East, uh, meaning really India and East Asia, but India and China, and didn't know about them, they would, um, uh, you know, just, uh, just uh, you know, not be able to uh, flourish in the world. That he, this is really a visionary thing when you think about it, because he really saw the rise of India and China like 50 years before it happened. And so he felt that education about these regions of the world was necessary. And so he invested his funds in starting a school in 1950, about 1950, I think, called the American Academy of Asian Studies. And he started it in North Beach. And he recruited for his... Um, I think Dean or Provost, um, a fellow by the name of Frederick Spiegelberg, who taught Sanskrit at Stanford. And Spiegelberg has a whole story with, with him. He was essentially a scapee from Nazi Germany. He was not Jewish, although his name seems to, might, you might think it, but he was, he was I think, uh, Lutheran, but he um, uh, escaped from um, uh, you know Germany in the late 30s, I think, or yeah, before the war. Um, but he was friends with Jung and Heidegger, and there's a whole uh, raft. Of them probably, um, you know, you know, I I don't know all the detail uh, uh, so well. Stefan probably knows better than I. But but um, he had connections with this great intellectual circuit uh, in uh, Germany uh, at the time and was quite a, you know, uh, profound intellectual sort, really. Um, and so Louis Gainsborough recruited Frederick Spiegelberg uh, to, um, you know, help him create the American Academy of Asian Studies. Uh, and of course, one of the people that they recruited early on was Alan Watts, you know, who had just converted from Anglicanism to be more of a Buddhist, right? And he, uh, Alan Watts is really the great, um, um, you could say, uh, the great uh, proponent of Buddhism and, and, and really was the first major publicizer with his different books, Way of the Zen being one of them, um, uh, had a tremendous influence on American culture of that time. The beatniks. I mean, after all, uh, you get Allen Ginsberg converted to Buddhism, you know, probably under the influence of Watts indirectly um, and uh, and others. And so they got Allen Ginsberg. And then 
they wanted to recruit uh, someone for to uh, uh, you know represent India at the American Academy, and Spiegel, Spiegelberg had this great story. He uh, went to uh, India uh, in uh, the late 1940s. And he was sort of, it was weird, a California guru groupie. He went to every ashram uh, in that he could in India. He was on a Fulbright. And he uh, went to every ashram he could go to to find, you know, the greatest guru of the modern age or whatever. You know, it was like that. You know, he was he was just searching, going, I don't recall, I think he was a little after Gandhi. I think he went in maybe 48. I think Gandhi was gone. Uh, but uh, he didn't go to uh, meet Gandhi. But he went to all these places. And eventually, sort of at, a, at the end of his um, trip, he went to Pondicherry and went to uh, the darshan for darshan of Sri Aurobindo and mother. And in those days, you stood in line for a very long time. And um, uh, the story goes that Spiegelberg um, asked one of um, Sri Aurobindo's um, uh, Bengali uh, coterie, you know, he went down to Pondicherry with a group of five or six, really, they were all political uh, radicals. Uh, uh, but eventually, uh, he took to spiritual pursuits and they followed him. One of these fellows was there sort of uh, taking care of the line of people who were going to line up. It used to be, uh, well, uh, uh, Stefan, you might have been there where Mother and Shurabindu used to sit at the top of a stairway and people then filed by the stairway for darshan. So uh, Spiegelberg asked this fellow, um, he said, well, he said, I'm waiting here for a couple hours, you know, to see Sri Aurobindo and mother. How long will I get to see them? And the fellow said, well, maybe, you know, 30 seconds or a minute, you know, at the most. And Spiegelberg, he almost sounded like an American, you know, saying, what do you mean I'm standing in line all this time and now I I get 30 seconds to see this great teacher? <laughs> I'm not getting my money's worth. You know, I mean, it's sort of like that. And the Bengali fellow was a, had a great wry humor and he knew the power of, you know, the Shakti of uh, the gurus, you know? And he said, do you think you could take more than that? Uh, meaning, of course, that um, 30 seconds might be uh, enough. It so happened that uh, those 30 seconds changed Spiegelberg's life and existence. Um, it was one of those things, you know, I always say that we all are like a radio station and we got favorite stations and that vibratory frequency on that uh, uh, station if that's the same as the teacher that you come before, the, all of a sudden the, the energy hits you and you make the connection. And, but also, of course, you could be uh, completely um, not influenced at all. I've had many people tell me about teachers that they couldn't believe, you know, they were overwhelmed and transformed with darshan and the, the, the teacher didn't do that much for me. It happened with, with Amachi, as a matter of fact, with me. She didn't particularly influence me. But uh, this was a transformational moment in Spiegelberg's life. And he uh, decided that Sri Aurobindo was the greatest uh, sage of the modern world. Um, and he had essentially found his guru in a certain way. So anyway, this was influential uh, in his decision then, as he was asked later by Lewis Gainsborough uh, to found, to, to, you know, to establish the California Institute of Asian Studies in San Francisco. Uh, and um, uh, so the 
first thing he did when asked to find somebody to represent India was he sent a letter to Sri Aurobindo and said, could you recommend to me someone to come to teach at this new institution that's trying to teach uh, uh, the West about the East, you know, and India particularly. And they bounced around some names uh, in the group and, it, uh, and they first, Sri Aurobindo thought, well, maybe he would send one of the, uh, you know, friends of his. And he had some really very impressive intellectual companions down there in Pondicherry that had come down there with him in Bengal. But in the end, uh, Sri Aurobindo said, no, 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 you must uh, invite uh, Dr. Haridas Chaudhry. <laughs> and so that's the story. And then Chaudhry got the letter from uh, Spiegelberg and he, and he said, well, I felt that it was destiny, you know, uh, I had to go. And you can imagine, here's a guy, they got two little uh, uh, babies, you know, uh, 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 Rita and Shipra were like one and two or something like that when this invitation came. They were very young. Uh, well, maybe two and three, I don't know the dating exactly, but um, so, um, I believe that um, Haridas came, and this would have been in about um, spring of 1951. Um, and he came by plane. Some people have, you'll even see written accounts where he went by ship, but it's not true. Bina and the two girls later came by ship um, to uh, greet him in San Francisco. And he joined the uh, uh, American Academy there. Um, and simultaneously, he founded the Cultural Integration Fellowship Ashram. Uh, and I believe it was incorporated in June of 1951. Uh, you can look at the map of the United States if you have a historical map, and you are not going to find many ashrams in the United States in 1951 that were established by Indians. In fact, it may be the only one at that time. There were very, very few. Maybe Yogananda, somebody associated with him, might have had one. But besides that, they didn't exist. Indians were not allowed to become citizens in America until 1965 uh, revision of the earlier immigration acts that excluded Asians from being citizens of the United States. Um, it was only in 65 they could be citizens. I, it uh, remains for history to discover how Haridas was able uh, to live in the United States and be a teacher and found a school <laughs> um, uh, uh, while not having citizenship. But of course, I mean, maybe green card status was there and so on. So they established um, uh, this school and uh, the great stories about North Beach of the time. And, um, you know, in a sense, this is a, uh, an, a um, what can you say, an ancestor of the Institute, uh, uh, primarily because of Chowdhury, but partially also because of the philosophy of the American Academy, which was really about teaching Asian wisdoms. Uh, and so they had a Japanese um, monk come to teach, Zen, uh, to teach Zen too, and also to teach um, Japanese art. And then uh, um, Watts was there and Chaudhary was there uh, and Spiegel was there. And the, 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 the great stories are about when they used to hold um, the three of them, Watts, Chaudhry and Spiegelberg would hold public meetings uh, for kind of um, lecture and discussion on like Friday nights in North Beach. And um, I know someone was written about this. I ran into them. The guy wrote a book and he even visited us at the Institute the, doing a lot of research on this. But anyway, the um, Understanding is, uh, and I've heard it, and probably 
is true that um you know like um Ferlinghetti and um and Ginsburg and Kerouac and a lot of the beats uh, and beatniks uh, showed up you know you can imagine in 1951 this was beatnik time hippies didn't come around for a long time after that but apparently these talks uh were uh and discussions were incredibly popular and they got rather large audiences. Where else would you get uh, uh, you know, discussion about Asia like this in detail and um, erudite? Uh, and so um, they were, that was quite a popular uh, thing. Then um, eventually, uh, of course, Watts was, um, famous for his excessive drinking. Kimberly McKell uh, tells the story, she's still, I have to call her, who was uh, a, a student at the American Academy as, as was Hillary Anderson. These two are important people in the founding of the California Institute of Asian Studies. And um, Kimberly talks about going to lessons with Alan Watts and he would have basically a big jug of wine on the desk and uh, uh, everybody would partake, you know, and it was quite uh, a, a, a little bit of a scene. And I, I believe she tells the story of him once falling off his chair behind the desk <laughs> in his uh, inebriation. Um, uh, I, as I understand it, you know, there were little tensions in the place and I'm, I'm not sure who didn't like who, uh, but um, but everybody respected and loved Haridas. And so what happened was, is that in the uh, 60s, and now this was an unaccredited institution, and um, um, in the early 60s, uh, they lost accreditation, I think like in 62 or 63. And um, the personage of, uh, of Hillary Anderson, who took you know, a lot of classes with Haridas there, um, uh, asked, started to beseech Haridas to found a school of his own. She said, look, you're you're the only thing going now. Watts had left and become famous, right? And she said, you're really the only thing going at this school now, which is now unaccredited. Why don't you start your own school of Asian studies? I'll help you, you know? And also they had the idea to be on the accreditation track. Both Hillary and Kimberly were hoping that they would uh, uh, be uh, able to get accredited degrees through a new school, possibly, and, you know, increase the value. So Hillary Anderson did a tremendous amount of the groundwork, and you can imagine starting a school um, uh, to compete with Stanford and Berkeley and everywhere else. Um, it was an impossible dream. I mean, the fact is, is that the Institute from its beginning is impossible. If you were to try to apply logic to this place, it doesn't work because uh, how are you going to be able to establish a, a school that was going to start out, you know, unaccredited and attract enough people to make a go of it? But um, uh, somehow, um, uh, uh, it happened. They got enough people together. Uh, to establish the school and and you know there was Bishop Siaku and uh, other um, uh, people who um, uh, they like to depend on indigenous teachers for the most part or uh, you know emic teachers teachers who from the traditions uh, but you know and they had a vast scope in the beginning they tried to do Arabic studies and Japanese and everything, every language, you know, not just Asian, but uh, Middle Eastern was taught. They had Greek also, I think, was taught for a while. I mean, it was really sort of a pan 
you know, a, 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 you know, a, a kind of a, a worldwide notion of education emphasizing the East, then Hillary became a teacher in the school while, while she worked on her PhD. And Kimberly also was a teacher. And uh, at a certain point uh, in um, the 70s, I believe it was our dear Kimberly McCall who came up with the idea of the title and Hillary was uh, interested in psychology, they decided to uh, approach Haridas to see whether they could start uh, the East-West psychology program. And Kimberly claims, Kimberly McCall, and, and, and Hillary agrees with this. Kimberly came up with the name, East-West psychology. Uh, and they started it. Now, I don't know, you'd have to look at the history of whether the, the um, integral counseling psychology had started yet or not. Um, I am not sure the um, uh, history uh, uh, of which came first. It may be that integral counseling psychology started first because Paul Herman, who um, did his psych degree, I think at UC Berkeley, um, approached Dr. Chowdhury and um, said that he wanted to essentially start, well, what amounts to the first transpersonal psychology program in the United States, maybe in the West. Um, and um, they were using the term integral loosely but, you know, one of the things was is I think they realized early on that Asian studies wasn't going to pay the bills <laughs> and they needed to find some kind of um, financial vehicle to make the Institute go. And, and so uh, they, they started the Integral uh, uh, Counseling Psychology Program. And then later on, I think also a PhD in counseling psychology even uh, while they're unaccredited, but um, so, but anyway, so East West starts in that mix, and you'd have to do a little research. You probably can look at the old um, catalogs, and it probably would you would be able to figure out when ICP started. Uh, and as I said, Integral was always um, loosely um, interpreted. Dr. Chowdhury was an integral yogi, but he was not about preaching Sri Aurobindo and mother to everybody. Sri, he did do classes on uh, Sri Aurobindo and mother, but um, but um, uh, he never was. Um, he he established the school to introduce Asian wisdom to America. That was his real goal. Um, Sri Aurobindo and mother were always there for him and they were very and they were very close and uh, he had a lot of correspondence and Bauman can tell you more about that with mother who advised him on the school. As a matter of fact when the institute was created then finally incorporated in 1968 it was the same year that Oroville, uh, Oroville was created. I think, you know, it's an interesting marking um, that would have. Um, but the, um, uh, when uh, moving ahead a little bit, when the Institute was becoming accredited in 1981, and that's when they hired Ralph Metzner, you know, as Dean uh, to help oversee uh, this uh, process, um, they um, uh, were told by the accreditation agency that they couldn't, they shouldn't keep the name uh, Asian Studies um, because um, now uh, they had expanded 
into the psychology area, and they might have already started the site, the um, clinical psych program doing PhDs. And so um, uh, the accreditation felt people felt it was not appropriate to keep the name Asian studies. And so they, this was a big, big, difficult argument on the board and elsewhere on what to name the Institute. And the interesting thing was that Bina Chowdhury was adamant that the name shouldn't change. And she wanted to have Asian studies in the name. Um, and, you know, uh, so the term California Institute of Integral Studies, she very reluctantly accepted in the end. <laughs> because the word integral could be broadly interpreted and in one sense it could relate to Sri Aurobindo's thought um, that Dr. Chowdhury represented. So uh, it was a compromise that nobody liked. And it wasn't at all clear what the integral would mean. Uh, and of course, we're still dealing with that question, right? Uh, of what exactly integral would mean. Well, I think it's important to note that Bina was opposed to having the Institute be named Integral Studies. And even though it in a certain way marks Sri Aurobindo's Integral Yoga. Um, so um, uh, let's see if there's anything more uh, that I need to say about all that. Um, Hillary Anderson, of course, went on uh, to be faculty person in East West. She got her PhD with Dr. Chowdhury and so did Kimberly, but they never got it. They did not get it when it was accredited. And when accreditation came, they did not allow retroactive accreditation. And both of them, of course, were somewhat bitter about the, the fact that they had you know, done this whole thing and helped found the school and everything else. And it turned out that their PhDs were still going to be uh, unaccredited. Um, um, and then Hillary also um, became a board member also, anyway, I mean, her name is important in this because she was so, she was the right-hand person for Bina and Haridas in the creation of the school. And I think without her, it couldn't have been, uh, it couldn't have uh, uh, come about. Um, and then um, uh, Dr. Chowdhury uh, died um, uh, young. Uh, in 1975, and um, it was a it was a huge loss, and and um, you know, but I mean, he they by the way, the Institute of Asian Studies and the Cultural Integration Fellowship were one unit uh, up until accreditation. And many classes were held at the fellowship. And of course, Dr. Chowdhury even had his own classes that he used to teach. When he was at the American Academy, he would teach classes at the fellowship also. That would have been 10 or 11 years, well, 10 or, well, 15 years or more, uh, where he had his own separate thing. Then when the Institute was accredited, uh, was established, Asian Studies was established in 1968, Fellowship was really part of that. The Cultural Integration Fellowship Ashram, as we call it, was part of the Institute up until, 19, uh, up until 1981 for 13 years. And then the accreditation people insisted uh, that the fellowship be severed from the school because um, they couldn't uh, vouch for the accredited status of teachings that were done at fellowship, or maybe there were other reasons as well. It was a somewhat bitter divide that um, much later on when I became vice president of the Cultural Integration Fellowship, I listened to many people who felt that the fellowship could should go back and become part of the Institute, but it turned out that the logistics of it were uh, once people found out that they would have to give up their identity to become part of 
the Institute again, they all changed their minds quickly and left me out on the limb because I had um, campaigned strongly for the reintegration uh, and convinced Subiando, the new president at that time, to try it. Uh, and then they uh, backed off on it. So then that was the final separation was in 81 of cultural integration fellowship from the Institute. Although, you know, there were uh, lots of linkages and uh, people went back and forth and many people who had graduated ended up going to the fellowship. Um, so you might wanna ask me if, if there are any questions that you have in regard to that, because I, I go up to 81 and it turns out that that was my first year um, teaching at the Institute. Um, I came in, uh, well, I think they were technically accredited in January of 81. Uh, they got their first accreditation, you know, and then you go through phases where there are reviews and all that. But um, that was a huge, huge thing. And a, um, a coming to fruition of Dr. Chaudhry's dream and practically impossible. I mean, if you think about a, a competing in the academic market of the Bay Area, uh, creating a new institution that then you could guide to accreditation seemed an impossible dream. But somehow they did it, you know. Um, by the way, Vern Haddock's name is a big name in the accreditation of the Institute. He taught in ICP, uh, of course, was partner with, um, uh, with Paul Herman, but he was also the Institute librarian for many years. But he was very, very central in the accreditation process. Of course, Metzner helped a lot. He had a, a Harvard PhD in psychology, you know. If you look at it from his side for a moment, you'll see that he was trying to establish academic credibility for the institution so that they could be accredited. And a lot of the, you know, and so the type and kind of people who were teaching alongside of Dr. Chowdhury when the institute was unaccredited were not necessarily the people that could go on and teach when it became accredited. On the psychology side, there was less of, of difficulty uh, in the pure psychology licensing side because those people all had pretty good psychology degrees that you know were accredited degrees and all that. So there were less of a problem, but on the humanities side, it was a little bit more of a difficulty. And so East-West really went underwent a whole reformation um, leading up to accreditation and then after accreditation, and you can find it in the uh, catalogs that go up to that time and you can see the different uh, people who got hired uh, afterward. And of course, Metzner um, was central and he often wanted to take credit for establishing East-West psychology, but he, he really didn't. Um, he was the kind of mover in the creation of East-West psychology post-accreditation. Here ends the first part of this interview with Jim. In a future podcast, we will speak to him about his own work in Asian studies and learn about some of the classes he has taught at CIS over the years. Mm -hmm.